On the 1st of March 2019, Sunday Times journalist Mark Tighe returned to his desk. On his desk was an envelope with two documents. One was a photocopy of a cheque made out to the FAI by its then-CEO John Delaney for €100,000. The other was a statement from the FAI saying that John Delaney had been repaid €100,000. What was this all about? Why was an organisation which had received €50 million Euros in public funding over the past decade needing a loan from its chief executive? Marx looked into this and the results were nothing short of explosive. It culminated in John Delaney leaving the organisation, the FAI's financial crisis and the organisation requiring what was effectively a bailout of nearly €20 million Euros from the state. These two documents were just the tip of the iceberg, and the entire John Delaney story is chronicled by Mark in Champagne Football. But if John Delaney had succeeded in court in March 2019, perhaps we never would have heard about this story, and perhaps John Delaney would still be CEO of the FAI. Welcome to Season 3 of Legally Fond, in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams, each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter pre-recorded workshops are also available. Courses commence in June and November and you can register anytime at lawschool.ie. For the duration of this season, we're giving away a free subject course worth €355, Euro, which can be used for any FE1 or King's Inns prep course subject with lawschool.ie. For your chance to win that, head to our Instagram. It's legally underscore fond. And this week, we've got your chance to win an equity textbook with thanks to Claris Press. I'll tell you a little later on in the episode how you can win that. Mark joins me now on Legally Fond. I just want to take you back to that day, the 1st of March 2019. These documents appear on your desk. You know you've got a story here. What kind of things do you have to do before you go and publish it? Like as as journalists, like you you make yourself as open um, for contact. You know, like I have my um, you know my obviously I'm on Twitter and other social media, so like my de- my direct messages open. Um, I very deliberately put my postal address up there on my Twitter bio. You know, so if anyone does want to um, forward me something, you know, as a tip off or you know a letter, we'd often get you know anonymous letters or people writing under their names, and it's still kind of the most secure way, I suppose, of if you want to pass on information and not get it tracked back to you because you know right, rightfully there's um certain uh, i don't know if you call it paranoia but you know um fear especially if you're a whistleblower and um you know that you'll be tracked down and you suffer retribution and you know whether that's you're a public servant or whether you're an fai employee or someone who's worked with john delaney you know he was definitely someone who if you crossed him you know he wouldn't let it go and there would be retribution people suffered, you know, um, who, who'd spoken out about him. Like um, we had Paul Cook, who went on to become FAI vice president and very much was part of the rescue operation when Delaney left. Like when he spoke out, asked perfectly relevant questions about the FAI's finances, he was ostracized and, you know, forbidden from attending AGM. So, you know, there's definitely a fear so of, of, of blowing the whistle or, or, or even raising questions about him. So I could understand... When I got this letter on my desk, the, the photocopies, there was no uh, indication who the source was. It was just two documents, you know, a, a remittance payment and a photocopy of a cheque. Now, they had the look of something genuine, but like as a journalist, people could send you stuff and it could be wrong, you know, or mistakenly, they just picked up on it wrong or it could be malicious, you know. So my great fear was at the time that 
you know, someone could be trying to lead you up a garden path here and, and it's not genuine and you run off on a, and print something that's wrong, you'd be, then you're in big trouble then with, you know, Irish defamation laws and rightly so if you print something wrong, there's going to be consequences. So we spent a couple of weeks, you know, um, knocking on doors, ringing people. And eventually we were able to get um, sources confirming that the documents we got were genuine. So it was only in the, after two weeks that Delaney kind of came in hard and um, like he was stonewalling us from the get-go. Like straight away, there was talk about family law from both the FAI's new PR person and his personal lawyer, Paddy Goodwin, who's also done stuff for the FAI. But then that last, that weekend, um, so the week leading up to that weekend of St. Patrick's Day 2019, we started getting lots of legal letters from um, his family law solicitors demanding that we, we give them these documents, demanding that... Uh, we give an undertaking that we wouldn't go to print and uh, you know, saying that we they'd go in the following week and uh, bring the matter up before the family law judge and try and get us done for contempt of court. Um, but we took our legal advice. We'd um, Hugh Hannigan is a very experienced lawyer, formerly of Matheson. Um, you know, he looked at it. There, there was nothing on the face of it that we could see that was a family law matter. These were, this is about a, a payment, a circular payment going between the FAI and John Delaney of a hundred thousand euro. And so, we were we, we just kept to our stuck to our guns and said you know look we're writing this story give you a chance to comment we don't know what you're talking about family law work this is completely alien to us you know you're writing to us under the heading Delaney versus Delaney we're we're not a party to your divorce case we don't care about your divorce case all we want to know is about what's happening with your money and the FAI's money and why is there this transaction so we're quite adamant that we you know we weren't doing anything that could possibly breach a family law in camera order you know. Mark, I'd imagine that you get letters quite often from solicitors saying the story that you're going to publish about my client is either defamatory or breaches their privacy. And if you publish it, we're going to sue you. In this circumstance, how concerned were you that John Delane would actually follow through and go to the high course? We had a slight worry, you know, at the time, like looking back on it, we, we, we thought he was bluffing, you know, because like, like, we just couldn't, you know, looking at it in the face, we're like, where, where, is the family, where does the family law come into this, you know? Like we're, there's nothing to do with his wife's accounts um, that we weren't aware of. Uh, so we're looking at the facts of what we had, you know, we were we were going to say, look, this is a check that Delaney put into the FBI's bank account. That's a fact. Like, how can that be covered by an in-camera? You know, because it, it, how could that be anything to do with family law? We were just, you know, so we just thought we had no no grounds. But uh, so we we very little expectation that he would go to court. We just didn't see you know, what a judge would make of it, you know, or how this was an arguable case on the face of it. So, and they they said like, and then it got to Saturday morning, we go to print about 11 o'clock on nighttime um, on Saturdays. And so it got to, um, got a, um, a legal letter on Saturday morning again saying, you know, if you haven't got back to us by noon, you know, that's it. We're going to, they said we'd go to court the following week. So the fact that they were talking about going to court the following week was like, well, look, they're not even talking about doing an injunction. So we just didn't expect them to injunct. We, we thought they'd take it up after the matter, you know, that we'd be in the family law court and we could, look, the story would be out there and we could say, look, we've no, we're, we've no idea about your family law matter. We print it. There's the story. We stand over the story, um, you know, and we'd, we'd happily face the judge. So they they weren't really telling us they would prevent us. I suppose they, they weren't saying we, we will prevent you going to, we will try and prevent you going to public, to publish your story so that was like between uh, that letter we got uh, 
can't remember what time it was exactly now it was early on Saturday morning and then the, the, the deadline passed you know um, and then it was it wasn't until about four or five o'clock that almost next thing we're getting these indications phone calls from Paddy Goodwin who's back on the scene who he wasn't the guy sending the legal letters um, then we suddenly got indications oh they might be going down to the high court and that was quite unexpected I suppose we just it hadn't been in the correspondence they were sending us so this was all happening a few hours before the paper was set to be printed. So it seemed to be this litigation tactic to run down the clock and bring the injunction at the 11th hour. And just to remind listeners that the Sunday Times is a weekly paper. So you've only got one chance a week to publish stories. So it was really important that the story got published on that Sunday. And you describe in the chapter in Champagne Football this scramble to the four courts. You had to source the barrister with a few hours to spare. The barrister had 20 minutes to read over the brief. At that point, how likely did you think it was that you were going to win? And maybe you could describe for me the courtroom scene. John Delaney, the man you've written about, is sitting just across from you in court. What was the atmosphere like? Yeah, um, so I'd say, yeah, it was a a mad scramble. Like, um, Hugh Hannigan was off. You know, I remember um, him calling me and saying, Mark, print off all your correspondence, you know, because this is going to be evidence now in court. You know, so we've had the, we got the tip off on March 1st. This is now March 16th. So we'd had the document over 15 days and, you know, luckily on, on March 1st, you know, I'd gone and spoke directly to Cattle Durbin, who's the new FAI's press officer in person, because he was still, he was finishing up in the Irish Sun, the office just down the, around the corner from our Sunday Times office. So I'd spoken to him, I'd uh, spoken to Paddy Goodwin by phone, and then I'd emailed, importantly, I'd sent an email that evening on March 1st to the FAI's press office laying out what we had. So that, that, that turned out to be very important. <coughs> Hugh turned up in his tracksuit, he's a big He's big into his running and uh, he sourced Tom Hogan, a senior counsel, and we, we got in a taxi, uh, jumped out on the keys at, um, just before six o'clock. So very, so, so late. And we li- literally ran down, we rattling the gates to the forecourt, trying to get someone to let us in, like the G4S security guy who couldn't see him. We, we, we ran up the stairs, I think it was court 16. You know, it was on a Saturday evening, the day before St. Patrick's Day. A lot of people see people going out on the town already. This is back when that was allowed. And um, yeah, I, I, we come in. I was in, I was in my blue hoodie. And, um, I was about to cycle home when I got the phone call. Um, there's John Delaney in a suit. You know, I was asked, "Do you want? Would you be prepared to give evidence about how you got got this story?" I said I would, but I, that wasn't necessary actually in the hearing. Um, Judge Anthony Barr came in. Uh, you know, we had to brief Tom Hogan very quickly, just outlining the story and all the steps we'd taken and how we'd alerted John Delaney to the story straight away and given him over two weeks to to respond or give us an explanation and uh he kicked off he'd um Nuala jackson is a very prominent and uh fierce senior counsel a specialist in family law and she was saying you know if if, if the sunday times would have published this story this this will set back family law in ireland um it'll mean anyone can just write up to a newspaper and deposit their um court papers and allow the sunday times or, or any newspaper to rifle through documents look for something juicy um, and that was kind of the main argument in their case. Um, the legal advice we were getting at the time was, you know, people don't talk about this much, but the draw of the judge is very important. You know, um, judges wouldn't be normally uh, used to getting media cases. They're quite rare in Ireland, you know, right to publish uh, freedom of speech cases. Family law would be a lot more common, I suppose. And if you're looking through the law, depending where your background is, you look through that prism, I suppose. If you're a family law judge, you go, oh, is this family law? I might give the injunction and kick it back to the, the, the judge who's handling the case in the circuit court, Patricia Ryan in this case. You know, and so that, that the legal advice we were getting was depending on the judge, 
the easy thing for a judge to do, you know, would be to yeah grant the injunction and say, you know, kick it back to the family law judge to decide if there is a breach of the in-camera rule. And that would have been for us like a quicksand, kind of a black hole where we, the advice was we'd probably not get out of that because actually if we went back to the circuit court, the likelihood of us escaping and being allowed to publish would have been very slim. So it was kind of all or nothing on, in that high court. And I suppose we were lucky we got Judge Anthony Barr, who was a judge who had done some media cases. We weren't aware of this at the time, but you know, looking into his background subsequently, he's done a good bit of um, stuff on, on media law and right to publication. And sorry to interrupt, but am I correct in saying that if you hadn't been successful that night in the high court, not alone would you not have been able to publish this story about John Delaney, but you wouldn't even have been able to publish a story about John Delaney getting the injunction against you. Is that correct? Yeah, like when we got down there, we were surprised he was looking for damages from us, for breach of privacy, for me personally, as a, I was named as a defendant, Sunday Times were named as a defendant. Uh, yeah, he was. He looked for a, a, a one of the orders he was seeking, you know, among a raft of orders, was that the hearing would be in camera itself, which would mean we couldn't name him as a defendant. So it was effectively a super injunction type application in, in effect, because, you know, if you're saying... Like we were thinking, like how we write the story? Could we write a story saying that a businessman or a a prominent person has obtained an injunction? You know, you so we leave people guessing who the hell is that, or even if that would be allowed on the depending on the the nature of the order. So yeah, it was very high stakes. Um, you know, if the judge had given him all the orders he was seeking, like damages for privacy, um, the in camera order for even the injunction hearing, um, we'd been really snookered. So we had a few different. Back in the office, we were liaising on Slack, so you know our in-house uh, Slack thing, going, you know, work up a few drafts of this story. You know, maybe Sunday Times loses an injunction case against a prominent person, you know, or or a businessman, or you know, or we're thinking we'll, we'll, it's possible we wouldn't be able to publish any story. So that if that that there was a few different kind of um, scenarios working out back in the office, depending on what would happen. So and this is all so so late in the day, like we, it kicked off. We briefed Tom Hogan over the space of 15 minutes and, um, you know, to read Delaney's um, affidavit. So we, and we started just around 6.30 and, you know, it just, it was so, and it went on then for two and a half hours, um, the hearing, the back and forth. Um, and the judge didn't come back then for his ruling until um, just before 9 p.m. So, and and he commenced to start reading out all the evidence <laughs> and the submissions, which is, we were like, oh my God. We thought he'd give a quick ruling and, you know, we, did, we hadn't actually remembered that. Oh, we forgot to tell the judge we have a very, very firm deadline. So we, we, there's a real danger we could have won the case and it, 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 the judgment came too late for us to actually get it into the paper. So the judgment is being read out. What is John Delaney's reaction? So the judge came out and, and he ruled in our favour in, in two, uh, on two grounds. Uh, one, which is very important, was that, as we showed through our emails, which Tom Hogan put into evidence, was that he delay, and the judges always look at this, you know, if, if you're feeling that your, your, your family law cases, your family law papers have been rifled through by a, a newspaper and you're delaying over two weeks to actually go to the court to bring this to their attention, he said, come on, you know, that's over two weeks delay. And it was something he hadn't really emphasised in his own affidavit. So that was a significant... Um, you know, stringing our bow in our, our, our case. But also, you know, there was no evidence that it, the, the documents we had or the information we had had come from family law. You know, he said it could have come from several scenarios, several sources, even, you know, someone who was wanted to be a whistleblower, someone who had animosity with John Delaney or someone just had information in the FAI. There's all sorts of different things. So, you know, Delaney had, had no proof to, to, as to what he was saying. So on those two grounds, you know, and he said, 
the matters we were looking at were matters of significant public interest, you know, transactions between the FAI, which received over 50 million euro from the state in the space of 10 years, and its CEO he said that was a matter of significant public interest. So when he said that uh, towards the end of his uh, judgment, you know, I, I, I was clenching my fist, I was delighted, and I could see John Delaney's head drop. He knew then the, the game was up, I suppose, in terms of that, that legal challenge. And, um, and then he awarded us our costs as well, you know, straight on the bat, despite the Nula Jackson's objection. So uh, you could see um, he was stung. He was he was very disappointed and uh, by the verdict. And we, like, I wanted to go over and actually ask some questions. You know, <laughs> it's the first I, he'd been avoiding me for two weeks, and I wanted to get a reaction from. Him, but it's obviously it's the middle of a court. There's certain rules and decorum. And I was advised to leave it <laughs> by our lawyers there. And um, you know, we 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 were in a race against the clock to get the story into print. So uh, you know, it was. It was a, quick phone call to fill them in given the, the new quote from George Barr and uh, Tom Hogan very kindly ran raced us down the keys in his um in his uh, Land Rover to get down to the Sunday Times office in, in the Watermark building and just to so we could see the story going into the paper make sure we hadn't made any big mistakes. So the story was pretty explosive when it was published and it was kind of the catalyst for Delaney leaving the FAI and the current investigation by the ODCE into the FAI. Now, I think our listeners will be interested in hearing about the relationship between the law and the media. I'm just wondering, as a journalist, do you find that often the law is used as a weapon against journalists to stymie your ability to do your job? I mean, how often do you find that people will use legal language or legal threats to stop you reporting on stories of legitimate public interest that they just don't want talked about or they just don't want published? It's not not that often, but I suppose... You know, we're always cognizant of, you know, if you get one detail wrong, you're facing a defamation action, which could cost, you know, in the region of half a million euro or something to the newspaper. So the consequences of getting something wrong are just dire, you know, for from a publication's point of view. And so that does have a chilling effect. You know, like down the year, people writing about John Delaney would have got legal letters, RT, uh, ourselves, The Independent, you know, over quite minor stuff. And so that... When, when editors are getting these um, letters, you know, sent in like confetti nearly, um, it, it, it would naturally, you know, no one wants to make your job harder. But um, so some editors, I definitely think, um, and it's happened in my own, my own case down the years, like where, you know, like Ryanair would be a, quite a company who'd be um, quick to send in legal letters over minor things, I would have found. And it definitely has the effect of you know saying Geez, do you really want to keep going on the Ryanair like it's just such a pain because they, they'll any minor thing they'll come come at you and uh, you know with all guns blazing with their lawyers so that that has a cumulative effect you know you can have it on like you want to investigate things you, that you think need to be looked at but then your editor will go maybe not you know like that's mm. you know that you had a, a slight error in a piece and it, you know, it, it took months to sort out and uh, cost us a fortune, you know, and it, it, so that definitely, that that's more kind of the effect. Like I've, the only other occasion I've had in my career where I had an injunction attempt like that last minute was with Dennis O'Brien. So, and we lost that case with him and Paddy McKillen um, and that cost us in the region of 90,000 just for a, an injunction hearing, you know. So people like that who are powerful and have, you know, can reach for the lawyers. It, it, it's tough to take them on as a, in the in the Irish uh, legal framework that we have at the moment, where it's you know even to fight an injunction case can be costly. Like the, our costs for that Delaney case were in the region of twenty thousand. Thankfully, John Delaney got had to pay them. 
you know, but when you lose, then, you know, you're talking about at least double that. So you know, that all is, comes into the reckoning when you're figuring out, you know, do we put the resources into going after these people in, in terms of trying to get a good story or bring stuff to light? So I, I definitely think when you look across Europe, you know, we, we have one of the most draconian um, press laws, you know, in terms of what, what the framework is in terms of defamation and privacy and, and, and just the cost of um, standing up for, for, you know, freedom of speech and publication rights in, in, in our courts. It's, it's just prohibitively expensive, unfortunately. It's a great point, and it appears that the costs are a huge factor. Whatever about the rights we place on people's reputations, and there is a constitutional right to a good name, when juries are setting awards and when legal fees are so high, a defamation case could have the potential to bankrupt a small media outlet. Yeah, but it's not, it's not even the... It is the cost, obviously, are the, are the underlying factor, but like, I'm, also, I'm completely biased here as a journalist. Um, but I've, you know, I've seen some cases like the Irish Daily Star case with uh, Gerald Keane, where, you know, they reported factually that, you know, his offices were visited by uh, cabs seeking documents on a certain case. And, um, you know, with under defamation laws, it's up to the defendant to prove their case. It's not like any other civil action where the plaintiff has to prove their case. And, you know, in that case, they had a costly payout. Gerald Keane won the case, you know, the jury side in his favour. But, but the law is, is very much tilted towards plaintiffs in these defamation cases. Um, I think un, un, unreasonably so. Um, and definitely it's so it's, you know, it stymies uh, publications from printing stuff that is factually correct, you know, which is, I don't think it's, it's healthy for um, for any society to have that kind of uh, legal framework in place where you can get in trouble for some, printing something that's true. Point very well made. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about, it's a story that you published on the Sunday Times last Sunday. Now, we're recording this on Monday, the 22nd of February. And tomorrow, John Delaney is making an application in court in relation to the ODCE investigation of the FAI, and he's trying to prevent the publication of certain emails. It's yet another episode in the John Delaney saga. Yeah, so we haven't seen the full detail. There was a hearing last Thursday before Judge Leone Reynolds, so it's like the, the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement, on the back of that story, going back to March 19, uh, 2019, um, launched a an investigation at the FAI, you know, as you say, it sparked a, a raft of stories. We did more whistleblowers came forward. It was, it was just amazing kind of the way it snowballed, but the, the ODC investigation is ongoing and they seized um, over a quarter million emails from the FAI. And there's a, because it's under the companies act, there's this, it's, you wouldn't get it any other criminal investigation, but the, basically the person under investigation gets to kind of look at the evidence and say, hang on, I want to see, to make arguments about what's privileged. And again, it's a bit of like deja vu. Um, John Delaney is arguing, you know, a lot of these emails are covered by family law privilege. So um, there's an argument about which ca- which emails can be uh, given over to the ODC. And there's a it's it's you know it's breaking new law. It's um, they've appointed a, for the first time ever a, an independent person, a guy called Niall Nolan, who's a barrister, to adjudicate on which of the emails are privileged and not. And, not. and so um, there's a bit of a fight over whether Delaney's submissions on this should be made public and. Uh, so Paul McGarry, his senior counsel, said on Thursday, we, we want certain reporting restrictions when this issue is argued out before Judge Lee Reynolds. So that's going to happen tomorrow. And um, we may have the Sunday Times again coming in there and saying, hang on, this should all be public. It's in, in, in the courts. So, uh, yeah, we're back there again two years on arguing about whether uh, certain issues to do with John Lane and the FAR are covered by family law uh, privilege or in-camera rules and not, or not. So, yeah, the story goes on and... Uh, 
it's, it's remarkable, I suppose, that we're, we're, we're still arguing on this issue nearly two years on. Well, who knows? There could be a second edition of Champagne Football with some added details at the end, some new footnotes. Uh, listen, Mark, thank you so much for your time. That was really, really excellent, and I really appreciate it. No problem, Gavin. Just before we have a little discussion about the interview, I just want to let you know that we've teamed up with leading Irish book publisher, Claris Press, and each week for the next four weeks, we're going to be giving away a legal textbook. This week, it's Claire Michelle Smith's book, The Principles of the Law of Equity and Trusts in Ireland. If you're a final year law student or you're studying for the FE1s, this is an FE1 subject and it will be pretty essential to you. For your chance to win that, head to our Instagram page, legally underscore fund, where you'll find the details about how you can enter the competition. All right, back to the interview. What did you guys think of it? I thought it was really, really good. You very rarely hear a journalist's perspective on the issue of media publications. And And imagine how frustrating it must be being a journalist who has a story that's of a legitimate public interest that you've worked on for weeks and weeks and weeks, verified, fact-checked, only for the person that the story is about to come along and undo all your good work by threatening you with a court action that the newspaper not might not be able to afford to defend or it certainly won't be able to afford to pay out in the case that they lose. Hey, look, it's not like I've said this before in the podcast about freedom of speech and how important it is to the general functioning of democratic society, but it's okay, I won't bring that up again. Yeah, I, I mean, but look, at the same time, it is interesting to hear, yeah, that he's characterised the uh, defamation laws in Ireland as, as strict. I mean, that's nothing new. And, and like you say, Alex, we have covered that before. But at the same time, the strict levels of uh, reporting standards do encourage proper research. They encourage, you know, journalistic integrity and and thorough, thorough vetting of sources and you're triple checking your facts. And, you know, he talks about that as well. He says, when the reports first came to him in, in, in the post from an anonymous source, at face value, yeah, they looked genuine. They looked like the real deal. But it took him a couple of weeks to find the right guy to say, yes, these are genuine. And I I think that's good journalism. You know, if it's somebody like Dennis O'Brien, who, yes, can afford to be litigious in in, in protecting his reputation, that's fine. But, you know, the consequences for for people could be incredibly detrimental if something was misreported or is, is not factually correct. And to add to that, there is the point that it only takes one defamatory allegation against somebody or one misrepresentation of a fact about somebody to ruin their reputation. And particularly we can see with how quick falsehoods spread on social media, it can be incredibly damaging. And even for people to go into court after the fact and seek monetary compensation for that, The money's not going to do much if your reputation has already been damaged. That, of course, has to be contrasted against people who are frivolously going into court to prevent people from publishing stuff about them that they don't want published. Well, I think there's definitely a trend that a lot of the people that kind of take advantage of these very strict defamation laws are people who, you know, I might quote Pierce here and say, like, you know, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. But this doesn't protect, you know, the average citizen often protects a very big business it often protects very wealthy individuals who can take advantage of the system and as uh, as he said in the interview like if they had been thrown back to the circuit court they would have gone down some sort of legal black hole and whether they would have come out of that or not even bother publishing the story is is still in question like what do we value more holding rich and powerful people to account or i don't know letting them get away with this and kind of you know some sort of legalese artificial construct of a court system That's Legally Fond Season 3, Episode 2, in association with lawschool.ie. If you'd like more from the podcast, be kind, leave us a little review, and follow us on Instagram. We are legally underscore fond.
Talk to you soon. (laughs) 